And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. Here he is, Michael Savage. If he wants to do something unethical, unconstitutional, illegal, such as ordering troops uh, to um, attack American citizens, which is something he wanted to do. So here we begin our interview with Carl Milo Higby IV, former U.S. Navy SEAL and now Newsmax commentator. The fact is, his show is great for a number of reasons. From my point of view, I'm on it. That's why it's great. No, I'm on on Monday. Obviously. No, that's not why. <laughs> He's the real McCoy. A lot of people talk about in the military, but he was in the U.S. Navy from 05 to 2012. He served two tours of duty in Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and he rose through the ranks to special warfare operator first class. He has written two books about his experiences, regularly appeared as a commentator on Fox News, CNN, and now on Newsmax. Savage. Michael Savage, a host like no other. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, gold Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989-898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989-898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989 with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989-898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. So, Carl, we're going to talk about a few things today, if you have a few minutes. But, you know, there's talk in the air that's quite alarming that if Trump wins, the left is going to marshal the military against Trump. Did you did you see those stories? I have seen those stories. It is shocking because they're the ones who said Trump was going to do that. That's right. It's running both ways. But if there was a coup by the military against Trump, should he win? In your opinion, without advocating one way or the other, what would the military likely do if 
leadership under whoever is leading the military says, take him down, arrest him. Do you think they would do it? Zero percent chance. Like, zero. I mean, zero. You might have a bunch of commanders want it or order it, but you'd have a bunch of people like me would be like, hound, sand, we are not doing that. Now, flip that around and... You know, you had there was a significant number of people when I served that were ready, willing and able to do that to Obama for a number of reasons that we disagreed with. Like when he started messing with the ranks, especially with rules of engagement and especially when he hung me and my team out for a court martial for some trumped up prisoner abuse charge to appease the Iraqi government during our withdrawal under Lloyd Austin. Mind you, oh, there was a number of guys that were like, if the order is given, we will do it. You're not talking about the Haditha story, are you? No, I'm talking about uh, the, the butcher of Fallujah. So from, from that movie, American Sniper, there's a guy going around drilling holes in everyone's head. Uh-huh. We caught that guy. And um, they he claimed pr- prisoner abuse. There was no evidence. We had a surgeon testify that it was a self-inflicted bite wound in his own mouth, and he pushed it off. There was no marks on this guy. And the claims that eight Navy SEALs basically jumped him and beat him up. It was preposterous. Well, that's like Fannie Willis screaming racism or the president of Harvard screaming racism. The minute they know the game, they know how to win the hearts and minds of the of the vermin on the left here. Exactly. And so they Lloyd Austin. This is why I hate Lloyd Austin. When (laughs) when I I found out he was absent for five days, I was like, this is typical. When we were over there, Lloyd Austin was the reason we couldn't put together an adequate status enforcement agreement, which made us leave, which led to ISIS because he literally created the vacuum for ISIS. He wanted to turn us over like to the Iraqi police for local prosecution. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. For, for something you didn't do, obviously. Correct. We were it was adjudicated and we were all acquitted, but it still ruined our career. This was Obama. So when you say like where the military stands, the military stands far more with Republicans than it does with Democrats. That's why I don't think you're going to get a single troop to pick up a gun and go arrest Donald Trump should even be ordered. So let's reverse the question. And I, I there was an article that I gave an interview with Breitbart about advice to President Trump. Should he, you know, should he win to Donald Trump? Okay. And I say I can give all the advice I want. He can have all the good intentions that he wants. But with the Senate and the Congress the way it is, he has zero chance of enacting almost any of his laws. So that leaves us with a horrible possibility. I've got to find it. Just bear with me one second. Of executive fiat, I guess, would be the only thing. we. (laughs) Who was the English ruler who suspended the House of Lords fired them, threw them out, said you're a bunch of horrors and liars and you got nothing done. I can't remember the name, but I know exactly what you're talking. It was around 1500. Yes. And 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 OK, so he gets rid of the House of Lords. Yep. And then he says the House of Commons will rule in order to get things done. And he gets a lot of stuff done because he doesn't have the House of Lords blocking him. Well, the House of Lords in America, as you and I both know, is the U.S. Senate. Right. <laughs> what if Trump were to say, I want to uh, eliminate the U.S. Senate to get stuff done? Would the military run run with him? I doubt it. I don't think so. I, I don't think I, personally, like people are saying these things that have no idea who Trump actually like Trump. You, you and I both know Trump would never do that. Um, now, we might issue executive fiat that would get challenged that maybe, maybe not, um, you know, 
would get actually held up by a Supreme Court. But he's well, oh, you mean executive Biden. orders on the order yeah. of Biden, who's been doing them from the day he became? Oh, yeah, exactly. That many have been struck down. Not enough, I think. But, you know, I mean, look, I, I don't think a Trump would ever do that. Um, and Biden, I wouldn't put it past him to try to stack the Supreme Court to get his stuff through. But, you know. All right. Well, we we covered the coup, yeah. <laughs> which I think is a very important question, because when I hear NBC reporting that there is discussion amongst military of doing such a thing, if Trump wins, I said, I can't believe what country I'm living in. No, like maybe people like General Milley would have done that, but you're not going to have a single rank and file. They can order it all day long, but the rank and file are never going to do that. Hmm. I'm sure you've seen uh, reports about China and WHO and that group talking about uh, disease X. Yeah, we did a whole monologue on it. This is insane. Well, it is insane because I looked into who this guy Tedros of uh, of WHO is. You know, the head of WHO, who's there. Yeah, current- he's not a he's not a doctor. No more of a doctor than Joe Biden is. Tedros of who is a 10th rate bureaucrat. An Ethiopian public health hack who went to a very inferior university in England. He is deeply tied to the Bill Clinton Foundation, Bill Gates. Worse yet, Carl, I discovered that Tedros of who is tied to Mugabe, Mugabe of Zimbabwe, the man, the, the stone cold communist dictator murderer. Yes. And he's the one warning the world about disease X. Look, this is insane. First off, they did this back in 2018. And then, poof, like a year later, COVID pops up. Strange coincidence, I know. But here's the crazier thing. It's like, if these people are so star-spangled serious about saving the world and helping the population and the global world order and all this stuff, we have two billion plus people, Michael, that don't have clean drinking water. Why don't you start with the problems we do have rather than making stuff up and figuring out new ones that we don't have? Because they want to control the population. And, and it's an old story of uh, uh, I have I keep citing an article that I have from 1960 in graduate school. I found this obscure article, which I right. carry with me from 1960 called Sorcery, Illness and Social Control in a Philippine Village. And I laugh about it because there are modern day sorcerers, these people, these elites, so-called. They're the sorcerers using illness as a social control because the societies are, I would say, disintegrating around the world, owing to the freedom of the Internet, good for good and bad. People are communicating amongst themselves, sharing ideas, again, for good and for bad. And they don't want any idiot in in in, in The Hague or in Zurich or wherever telling them how to live, right. what to do, what to think. So they're coming up with these diseases to control the populations. Don't you think that's what's going on? A hundred percent. I mean, look, these COVID is the flu. All right. Then we had, you know, in, in one year, and I believe it was 2016, 2017, we had like 80,000 people die from the flu in America. 80,000. Okay. They're talking about all in, not people who died with COVID, people who died of COVID 
was in the fifteen to 20,000 range. So you're going to tell me that that was so bad that we needed to shut down the global economy. These people just make stuff up as they go along. And the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab and his weird Dr. Evil outfits on, that guy is the same person who's standing up there and is like, oh, we've got another one coming. We need more control. Their 2024 mantra is renewing trust. You give me one reason why I should trust these goons. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We need a paradigm shift. We must rebuild trust, and that's actually the theme of our meeting. We have to rebuild trust. Well, that's you and I agree with each other on that. How much of America would follow whatever they're told to do is the, you know, is the real question. That's the thing that I always tell people. I'm like, hey, look, you guys, everybody has seen The Hunger Games. Just about everybody has seen The Hunger Games. Zero people in that movie rooted for the Capitol. Everybody rooted for the rebels. Yet when it happens in real life with people who are dressed in the exact same manner, with the same perverted weird styles and the same desires to control absolutely everything, 50% of the country is like, yeah, I'll get in line and do whatever you say. I'll mask my face. I'll take the vaccine. Whatever. Come on. That's why when they say the good German went along with Nazi Germany, and all Germans were guilty. It's nonsense. People are afraid of a government yeah. and they'll do what the government instructs them to do. I see people here in the Bay Area of San Francisco. It's frightening to see driving around in their own car with a mask on by themselves. You see them, right? I live in the Socialist Republic of Connecticut, Michael. I'm on the, I'm the other side of San Francisco. I totally <laughs> see it. I got people with the coexist sticker in their Prius with nine masks on listening to opera and with the windows rolled up, no air conditioning because it affects their gas mileage in the middle of August. I know how crazy these people are. My friend Jeff Roven, who I've interviewed many times, he wrote all the Tom Clancy novels, lives in Connecticut, and he was a lifetime New Yorker who fled Manhattan after COVID. He couldn't take the pot smells anymore. He grew up in Manhattan, left there, oh. lives in Connecticut. He tells me similar crazy stories. <laughs> you guys ought to meet. He's a great guy, especially since he wrote the Tom Clancy novels. Uh, By the awesome. way, I found in the article it says, do you think Trump would use the military to become Lord Protector of the realm of the United States of America? I hope not. He concluded this is from the Breitbart article. And then I talk about Savage says he's a realist who understands that it is virtually impossible to achieve anything with the current corrupt Congress. He pointed to English statesman Oliver Cromwell's dissolution of the English Parliament in 1653 as a historical model, highlighting the challenges of political reform and the use of force and governance. It was it was Cromwell. I, I found it in the article. I, Cromwell. Cromwell. We both know it's Cromwell now. We do. So, Carl, you're now a TV star. You're no longer in the military. But you're you're eating, you're eating well. You how many hours a day do you work out? I try to put in at least two a day. You do? Oh yeah. You still do? Yeah. I, the, the the zombie apocalypse could still happen, Michael. You run. You work out in the gym. What do you do to keep in shape? 
I generally try to just move as much weight as I can as many times as I can until it hurts. So I'm sore the next time. <laughs> God. It's, it's really simple. People are like, I need a personal trainer. I need all these programs and diets. It's like, guess what? If it has an expiration date on it, it's probably fine to eat. If it doesn't expire for five years, don't put it in your body. And on the other side, just go in the gym, move stuff around until it's hard and don't hurt yourself. That's all. Interesting. You don't need a personal trainer. You need personal self-control and internal drive. And I know older guys, you know, I'm 81 years old. I hope I make it to 82 this March. I used to lift weights in my teen years. I would run up waterfalls, you know, but as you get older, I know a lot of guys who still push themselves very hard. And I say, try to practice the middle way when you get older. You know, you can't you can break things when you get older. Oh, yeah. You know, a I, lot of I guys my Achilles tendon. Not only that, but you could push your 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 circulatory system. I think of the Zen middle way. As you get older, you know, a little Zen fluidity there. I could be wrong. Maybe I should be working out. I'm looking in the mirror and saying, maybe you shouldn't have followed your own advice. Maybe you ought to join the gym down the road. You might look uh, a little better in the mirror, Michael. I say that, look, splitting firewood is my go-to. If I can't get to the gym, I'll go up to my farm and I will split firewood for six to eight hours. And I have never slept better than I do after a wow. day like that. Last time I did that, I was at a rental house one summer in Tenants Harbor, Maine. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about 40 years, 50 years. Wait a minute. 60 years ago, I broke <laughs> firewood 50 years ago. I loved it. It was a Tenants Harbor, Maine. Beautiful place. Yeah, it's my favorite two things. I get to break stuff and lift heavy things. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you walk down the street of Manhattan, the streets of Manhattan, and you see you would you would intervene if you saw a crime being committed or you'd walk. I mean, you'd have to intervene, wouldn't you? I, I couldn't walk by. I actually have. You know, it's interesting. I have intervened um, and I did like a little postmortem on it. And I was thinking I was like, had that have gone any other way than it did, I probably would have been the one sitting in jail like Daniel Penny. That's what I was going to ask you. You take that hero, the ex-Marine Daniel Perry, who intervened with the lunatic on the subway car, put him in a chokehold. The lunatic died. Daniel Perry's facing terrible, terrible consequences. Uh, doesn't that give you a guy like you pause? Uh, no. Um, and I, we, we actually covered this yesterday on my show a little bit. And his argument to that jury is very simple. You look that jury right in the eye. Daniel Penny should deliver his own closing arguments. He should ask them if your daughter, your son, your grandmother, your grandfather, your uncle, your aunt, anybody you love was sitting there on that subway being harassed by a madman that you had no idea of his intention of, would you want me to save them? And if yeah, the answer is yes, you cannot, cannot convict him. But, but Carl, you and I both know it's not a jury of his peers. It's true. It's uh, the same kind of jury that Donald Trump is facing in Manhattan in Atlanta and everywhere else. It's a stock jury, not of their peers. And it's very hard to talk to people who have prejudices and preconceived notions of what justice should be based on race. So I'm terrified for this guy. I've tried to raise money for him and whatnot. I hope to God that he does this and he does uh, does prevail. So you're now a television host on Newsmax TV. I'm going to ask you a loaded question. Would you recommend that a young person pursue a career in the media? Yeah, I would. Um, I I love this job. Um, 
it is i get up every you know there was a funny thing they we have newsmax has its own magazine and they you know they asked me offhandedly they were like hey we need a news we need a, a new year's quote and i said to them i said you know what like i don't do new year's revolu- resolutions because i wake up every day and take it to the max and anybody who doesn't is got their priorities a little mixed up and well they actually printed the damn thing and you know, I thought about it and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like I'm in a fortunate position where I love to do this. I get to talk to hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people about things that mean something to me. And it's yes. not me barking at them. It's a chance for me to share my point of view. Love it, hate it, whatever. I don't like I, I my show's not for everyone, but I really like it. And, and people are always like, oh, you should run for office. It's like, well, I ran for office in 2014. I ran for Congress and I failed. When, and in which state? I, in the Socialist Republic of Connecticut. No, oh. Um, so, you know, and, and I, I said, uh, you know, I'll probably never run for office again. Who knows? Maybe I'll give president a shot in 20 years, but who knows? And it, it's a chance to connect with these people in a way and influence people and, and start the conversation. I always say the best interviews I've ever done is when, not when I convince the guest or the opponent or whatever of what they're saying, but yeah, and you know, probably better than that. You've had probably the most successful career outside of Rush Limbaugh on radio and, you know that when you can get somebody to change their mind by simply asking them a question, that is the greatest reward, I think, anybody in media could ever ask for. Well, I saved a man from suicide on the air once. Believe it or not, I was talking about suicide and what a crime it is against the body, according to Judeo-Christian belief system. I said, is there anyone out there thinking? And a guy called. It turned out it was real. He kept in touch with me for a while, and I talked him off the cliff. These things do happen in radio when you really give a damn about the listeners. You know, I had a program director when I was in the radio world who said to me, he would see me give give it my everything, every show for three hours a day. I entered radio at age 52. No one knew how old I was. I wasn't 52. I could have been 22. Yeah, I gave it three hours a day. When I got off the air, I was in a drenched sweat. And Jack, the program director, said, that's the way it should be. you got to give it your all. And he said, Michael, there's no greater high in the world than than the media. It's one yeah. of the greatest natural highs there is. It's totally addictive. Yeah. If you're there and you really put yourself out, you know, yeah. as you do, that's what you're talking about. It's like being a lawyer, giving a closing argument that wins the case every single day. And that's, you know, I have a fantastic team that works with me on everything. And I told them day one, I said, Whatever you put out is out there on the Internet forever. And if you're not here every day to do the best job you can, because every day might be the issue that changes the world. And if you're not here putting out like that every single day, I don't want you on my team. And everybody stayed in their seat and they started getting to work. Well, you're very lucky to have such a staff. And I must say that you're, you're the owner of the network is a great fan of yours, which is why you're on the air, right? I mean, uh, lucky enough, yes. Uh, he, really, he really loves your work. Savage. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. How did you get your start in front of the camera? So Other while, than your parents with a Kodak or whatever they were using. <laughs> um, so uh, while I was on active duty, going through that court-martial for prisoner abuse, I wrote a book about, you know, the succinct problems within the military and largely in the country that I believed were, you know, constitutional violations and atrocities. And Fox News got a hold of the book, was like, hey, we'd love to have you do an interview. And I said, great, that sounds fantastic. So went on Fox and Friends and kind of 
they liked what I had to say, so they kind of rolled from there. You're no longer on Fox, obviously, because you're, no. on, you're on a, yeah. a network that's biting at their heels, so to speak. Yeah. So I, I quoted you in my book from 2013. I, I wish I don't know which book it was. I can't find it now. Remember, I, I mentioned to you the other day on your show about the don't tread on me patches. That was fantastic. I was honored when you told me that on air. I didn't know that. I didn't remember it. I said a Navy SEAL by the name of Carl Higby. I don't know which book it was in, but it was an amazingly important story to me to realize that although you have me on your show, I mean, we both didn't even remember that that long quote about your, your activities. So you go on Fox, then how did you get to Newsmax? Uh, well, so Newsmax was just starting up at that time around 2011. You know, obviously, Chris Ruddy, our owner, who was you know very involved, he always has been very involved even to this day as, as the network is much, much larger. Um, he kind of connected me with one of his people said, I'd love to have you on my on my network. I started mm. coming on there. I was a regular since 2011 on a variety of shows they had. And then I was lucky enough. One day he pulled me aside. He said, hey, I'd love to give you a show on a Saturday morning. See how you do. It's great. Poured my heart into it. Then he said, I want you to be the Saturday and Sunday guy. I said, great. And then, you know, he eventually said about a year ago, I'd love you to take the 5 p.m. slot. And uh, I said, be honored. Well, it's a tough slot. 5 p.m. on the East Coast is really drive time, right? Yep. It's a big slot. Is is that yeah. considered? What's the hottest slot uh, in television? Is it 5 p.m., 6, 7? What is it? Well, you know, what's interesting is um, the 5, my competitor over there, they're the, you know, hands down the behemoth, the biggest oh. show. Yeah, I mean, they're they're touching 3, 4 million people. And, I mean, they were beating Tucker Carlson when he wow. was still at the network. And but it's also drive time. So I'm up against those guys. But look, I I love a good fight. I'm I want to say I'm overtaking them by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not even close, but I'm I'm gaining momentum. And we have a really great audience that, that is really committed to to tuning in. I think, look, we have Rob Schmidt. He's our guy. He blows it out every night at 7 p.m. He's he is. He's, he is our guy. Nice. I'm on his show on Fridays. Yeah. No, great guy. We have Eric Bowling. He's he's another a big number nice. guy. Yeah. Greg Kelly and I, I think, are most aligned. But he, I, I will say, Greg, working with him, he is one of the most sincere people I think we have on our air. It is, I mean, it is actually fascinating because he says everything from the heart. Was he a Marine pilot? He was. He flew Harriers. Amazing. Yeah. He's definitely good at what he does. No, all these guys you mentioned are, are really very good. So you love what you're doing. You got your start after your book. You recommend that young people do go into the business if they believe in what they have to say because they're influencing people. Mm -hmm. And the media landscape itself, Carl, is changing dramatically, right? How has it changed since you began your career? You know, actually, I think it's changed for the better. Um, we had a dip. I, I, when I first entered, I didn't really understand it that much. I said some things on radio and other mediums that I probably shouldn't have had that, you know, honestly led to that, that were rediscovered, that were not a problem when I said them. But because we became so politically correct, seven, eight, nine years later, when I was in the Trump administration, I had to resign over some of the things I had said that re-came to surface. There what, were, were you, what were you doing in the Trump uh, world. So actually, I was uh, the head of CNCS. I was the chief of external affairs over there, which is they're the agency that liaised with all the the non government agencies, the NGOs like Red Cross and things like that. Um, so I was intimately involved with like the Hurricane Harvey cleanup and uh, a number of those things. But 
it was, um, you know, it was interesting because I said these things on live air and nobody had a problem with it. You know, they were just, okay, I didn't maybe agree, maybe disagree. And then they came out. And of course, when CNN writes them into whatever headline they want, they seem worse than they actually are. Um, but so I think new media took a dip. You couldn't say anything without offending somebody. And if you offended somebody, you lost your job, which, hey, hashtag me too. And, but now it's kind of, they've made so much noise with everybody getting offended. It's almost like a badge of honor now that you said something that offended somebody. So I think it's gotten a lot better. And I think a lot of people have had it and they want real normal P that's why I tell people all the time, look, write op-eds, get published. I'll have you on my show, Put you know, I I try to get normal voices on my show more than big name pundits, because if you're thinking it at home, you're probably not alone. And I want people like that to have a bigger voice rather than the experts that have, you know, they've written papers. And that's a problem with journalists is they write papers about people who try and people who do and people who sometimes fail, but they've never actually tried or failed or, or done anything themselves. It's the a man in the arena theory. So we have cold weather out there, as you know, and love it. Every other EV on the market is now stalled because the charging <laughs> stations don't work. Having, having said that, and I know uh, you must. I know you must appreciate muscle cars and such as I do. Uh, I'm a car nut. Uh, how long do you think it will be till Lord Austin declares that the uh, M1 A1 Abram tank has to be charged by run by batteries? I, I'm. They've already actually proposed this. Oh, come on! I'm yeah. sure. Really? No, they, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, and I thinking to myself, I'm like, so if I'm in Iraq, do I just pull over on like South Bakalakadaka Street and connect to their non-existent grid and plug in my tank for four hours while it charges in the middle of a gunfight? Like, come on, guys. Yeah. Well, I'm waiting for the Lord Austin to say we're going to use electric tanks. OK, World War Three watch on Breitbart. NATO set for biggest war games in decades. This is insanity. Can't someone step in and stop this insanity between Ukraine and Russia? Uh, before it's too late. You think this could spin into World War Three? Uh, I mean, if people it, look, I don't think Nikki Haley has a snowball's chance in hell of winning. But if she did, yeah, I could see that. Um, definitely with Joe Biden, because he's not like Nikki Haley would intervene, which could make things worse. I think Joe Biden doesn't do anything except give them money, which is not a metric of success. Um, so anybody but someone that they respect, you need uh, and I, like, I don't want to sound cliche or sycophantic here, but like, look, nobody messed with us when Trump was president because they were like, this guy's crazy enough that I have no idea what he's going to do. So they all backed down. They all held their own. Every other global leader who's a dictator like Xi, Putin, things like that, they have time. They know presidents rotate out every four or eight years. So they just waited him out. I am I am concerned about global conflict, but I'm not concerned about, you know, Red Dawn troops parachuting into, you know, Gary, Indiana. What I'm concerned about is they're going to take out the grid. Now, me personally, I don't care. I am I am completely capable of being off the grid. I have years worth of food. I have plenty of firearms to defend myself and food and water and supplies for my family because I'm prepared for this stuff. I think everybody should be. But I'm worried about people who aren't. And you're pre- are you a, so you're a prepper beyond a prepper. I wrote the book on prepping. <laughs> ah, nice to know. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like I hunt for most of my meat. I have I grow in the summer. I grow most of my produce. You're allowed to hunt in, in Connecticut deer. What are you? Hunting? Oh, oh, yeah, deer. I mean, I, I put away, you know, I, I have 12 to 14 tags a year. I have a farm up north. I, I live down in Greenwich, Connecticut um, during the week. And poor little rich boy. Yeah, exactly. Poor little rich guy works eight days yeah, a week. But we need <laughs> rich guys like you who are dedicated to America. 
So, no, no, I want to talk about hunting deer because I'm a city boy. I have a place in in uh, up on a hill in Marin County on a mountain that I've had for years. And the only animals running around is the, the deer. They love to run around on that, you know, that mountain. You're yeah. not allowed to hunt here in Marin County. You go to jail. But I say, you know, if it hits the fan, pardon me. OK, I got a scoped rifle. I was on the rifle team in high school. Tell us what it's like. Where do you shoot the deer? You know, actually, I'll get to that. But one of the greatest things, there's a lot of naysayers. There's a lot of people out there that really think meat is made for the store. and They don't have no idea where it comes from, which I think is hilarious. Um, I'm a big bow hunter, mostly, because I love, I love, and, and I'm a guy, I've sat in the stand for an entire year, watched dozens of deer walk right by me and not shot a single one for the whole season because they weren't the deer that I wanted. You know, I didn't, I don't need the meat. So why would I just kill indiscriminately? You don't hunt, you don't hunt for fun. You hunt for food. I get it. Right. Huge difference. Yeah, exactly. But I hunt as a deeply spiritual part. Um, I spend a ton of money and resources and time you know, growing my property so I can have the deer and things like that. And I teach my kids about this. And I think this is a vital thing that a lot of kids nowadays don't get, oh, which is absolutely. The, the value of the outdoors. And I've, I've taken my, my six-year-old, my 11 to well, soon to be 11 year old uh, into the stand and we'll sit there. I've never seen a six-year-old sit still for more than seven seconds in my house. When you put them in a deer stand and you're having them appreciate nature and look for life and looking, watching out for deer, that kid sits still for three hours. Wow. And when you take a life right in front of your child, you explain to them that this is a piece of nature that had a family, that was a, a life that you took, that nature gave you so you could survive. And the gravity of that, watching a child realize that, it gives this newfound respect that I don't think is taught anywhere else in society today. Savage. Home of borders, language, culture, the Savage Nation. A savage republic inside the plot to destroy America lays out the threats we face, prepare you for what's next, and offer solutions to save our republic. Please wake up and fight back before it is too late. You can buy it right now on Amazon or on bondsandnoble.com. A Savage Republic, Inside the Plot to Destroy America by Michael Savage. Thank you for listening. Share it with five others. That's beautifully put. I can almost applaud. I, I would applaud because that's so well put. First of all, it's my belief system is identical to yours with regard to the taking of life. And that is a family. They do. They're sentient creatures. They know they're they're dying. Their family knows they die. I mean, I've been in a slaughterhouse in Fiji once. It was enough for me to understand that cows know that they're about to be killed and they their friends know they're about to be killed and they all talk to each other and scream. It's mm -hmm. horrible to watch in a slaughterhouse. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure the deer doesn't even know it's been hit. I mean, it, it doesn't feel it. Or it, well, so, it, it feels the it feels the shock of the arrow. Well, that's what I, I really like. And, and one of the things that if you talk to any hunter, uh, one of our greatest pains is to see an animal suffer. I mean, and that's mostly why bow hunt, because if you a well-placed bow shot and I spend hours and hours and hours and hours upon days practicing to make sure that when I do shoot, I don't hit that animal where it doesn't kill it. Huh. If you sh if you shoot an animal with. Uh, and, and my friends who hunt with me, they know I won't let them go out and stand until I feel comfortable that they can hit the target they're aiming at without wounding or hurting that animal. I'm very strict about that. So you want and, you want to you want a kill shot, the first shot. Oh, kill yeah. shot. And with a bow, half the time, I'd say more than that. These animals don't even know they're hit. They'll they'll kick and they'll run 100 yards 
and stop because they don't they felt something but they don't know what because the blade of an arrow is so sharp that it just goes right through them and they have no idea and then they just dropped it when you're shooting center mass and you're shooting for the heart is that what you're aiming for heart and lungs yeah nice okay now city boy the animal's dead it's yeah. laying on the ground i read about quote dressing a deer mm -hmm. when i was a boy scout that you hang it from the legs upside down on a tree yep and then uh well, so there's actually a couple ways to do this. So some people gut in the field. It depends. I'm fortunate enough to have my own property, so I have quads. I just take the thing up, pick it up over my shoulders, walk it out to wherever it is, and then throw it on my quad. We drive it to the barn, we hang it up, and we dress it out there. Um, I have a, a, I have a, a relative who hunts in Nevada. He grew up, he's a Western guy, and he hunts since he's a child. He hunts with a, uh, I think it's a 25 caliber. It's a weird rifle. I never heard of The caliber is very odd. Not 20. It's in the 20s, which is odd for a rifle. 223? 270? 243? I don't remember, but I was very impressed with the size of the round. I thought he'd be using a 30 or a 6 or something for deer hunting. Yeah. But he does that. He said, no, we don't hang it up. We basically cut it open in the field. Well, some people do that. Lying down. And he said, we just take the meat that we want and leave the rest for the, for the, carry for the animals, the other animals. Oh, yeah. I, have, I mean, there's a ton of coyote and foxes and critters and varmints that run around my property. And I mean, like, we will take as much meat as we can down to the muscles in the neck, to the ribs, to everything. And then we'll leave the rest out for the uh, the small animals to take it. And, you know, such is nature. Did you ever think we'd be talking about hunting on this interview? I sure I hope so. <laughs> no, I hope you don't mind. I mean, if no, you feel not like at all, I, I think this is something that no one ever talks about. No, and, it's it's taboo. If you're un uncomfortable with it after the fact, we can edit this out. If not, not at we'll, all. We'll leave it in. I mean, I don't know. You know, I kind of go with the flow of the conversation. And uh, you're talking about a warrior who also hunts. So let's finally go back to you as you grow up in Greenwich, Connecticut. Can you tell us what your dad and your mom did for um, professional or if you don't want to bring them into this discussion? Yeah, it's fine. My dad was in finance. I mean, he did very well in finance. Is very fortunate to grow up with that, that lifestyle. But uh, my mom was in insurance. She, she raised us for quite a number of years, but she was also in insurance and finance as well. Um, you know, it, one of the things that I will always give credit to my parents about is they never gave me anything I wanted, but gave me everything I needed. Hmm. They, I mean, like you're talking to the guy who lived in Greenwich, Connecticut, Mike, I drove a seafoam green, 1977, moped with a boombox duct taped to the back to high school. I used to park it next to my friends, Audis and BMWs and Porsches. <laughs> so when it like, I might be from Greenwich, but I grew up very, very different. I worked on a barge. I drove a forklift. I worked at a tree service. Like I, I grew up. But wait, my, did they, did your father make you do that or you chose to do it? I, my father said, you need a job and we're not going to give you anything. So you go work for it. My, and father, my father was the same way. He would say to me, even if I had money, this was really a paradox. We weren't we didn't have money. But he said, even if I had money, I wouldn't give it to you because it ruins children. He exactly. said, anything you want, you're going to have to earn on your own. I got so mad at him, like, screw you. Yeah. If you, you mean you're telling me you're, you're you're a poor guy, but if you are rich, you'd still screw me over by not giving me anything. Great. I love it. <laughs> well, that's I the thing. It's like I get look, I have. I am up at my farm. I restored a hundred year old sawmill. I milled the wood to build my own house with my bare hands. I could have hired some contractor to do it. But now when I walk into that house up there, 
I look at it, I'm like, I built this house from trees that I cut down on this property. My kids helped me do the masonry around the, the foundation and the thing. And I, you know, we poured concrete together, teaching a five-year-old how to use a concrete screed, you know, and, but for their entire lives, they'll look at that and they'll tell their children, I built this house with my dad. But you are, this is inherent in you then. I mean, even if let's say your dad said you need to get a job, if you were not the type that was self-motivated and had internal inherent self-respect mm-hmm. by my analysis of human beings, you wouldn't have done it anyway. You, you just would have rebelled against you need a job and said, I don't want it. Or you wouldn't, you would have ducked it. Right. But then I, then you wouldn't have invited me on your podcast. Cause I'd be a worthless bum smoking weed in my parents' basement. Well, <laughs> maybe you'd just be another ordinary white middle-class American who really is not motivated to do very much other than collect well, a paycheck. I think the, well, maybe, but I think, I think even mid, most of middle-class, you know, and, and this is one of the things that in, 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 especially the left-wing media has really done is they have this disdain for middle America because they see them as not accomplishing as much too. And I certainly don't put you in this boat, but the, like you look at them, they'll talk down to people of, you know, Alabama, Ohio, you know, North Dakota, and they'll say, oh, look at these. They're just average people who work a job. Well, that average person raises three, four, five kids. Then those kids don't look at that person as average. Those kids look at that father, that mother, and they're like, this is the greatest human in my life. And I think that people like I choose to do this media stuff. But I think that there's people who choose to roll everything in church. You have turds out there that are are horrible people or choose to achieve nothing. But I think the vast majority of people that maybe don't have the achievements on paper, like, you know, diploma from wherever yeah, no, or no, invent the atom bomb. But yeah, but, for you know, for the listeners out there, I think people that that maybe don't have on paper achievements or get recognized by the Medal of Freedom there's still someone in that person's life, a kid, a nephew, somebody that they've impacted and their, their entire life revolves around that person. And I think that is their, that's their heroism. Well, years ago, I once said the average person is not that average. I mean, I, I that's, that's true. You know, and I look at movies, war movies from world war two, like GI Joe, which I happened to see a rerun the other day about Ernie Pyle, the great war correspondent. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. It was no. called G- the real GI Joe. And it was about, I think, yeah, Ernie Pyle, the war correspondent. And it showed the average grunt out there, what they had to live through. And these guys Mm -hmm. in regular life were accountants, teachers, whatever. And here they are living in the snow, fighting the Germans in 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 the cold, crawling into holes in the ground. How the hell does the average person do that today in this age of comfort? There is there's a fabulous series made called Chernobyl. You've probably seen it. Which Chernobyl? I heard it. I don't it, know. It, it's on the H. It's on HBO. It is. It is a five hour series that they did, and it is such a magnificent series. And I actually, I, I you know, this network sent me to Ukraine uh, early on in the conflict to check it out and see what it was worth reporting on. And I actually had a chance to go to Chernobyl, which was one of the most intense experiences of my life. I've mean, been to sixty countries, killed people in most of them, and that go to Chernobyl was was the most intense thing. Um, you know, it's. There, there's a part of that series where they say the, the, that one of the top ranking people in the Soviet Union looks at a bunch of 
you know, people who've been ins- essentially enslaved to work at the the thing because the communist dictatorship said you will work at this nuclear power plant and you have no other options, period, full stop, shut up and do it. These guys raised their hand. They said, why should I expose myself to radiation, probable death, and go wade into this water and and pump this this tank out that you want me to under an active melting down nuclear reactor? And he looked them all in the eyes and he said, you'll do it because it must be done because nobody else can. And if you don't, bad things will happen. And that is one of the most impactful statements out of that whole series, but also that I've ever seen. It's like those who have the responsibility or have the ability have the responsibility. Yeah, but it's also done under coercion. I mean, it's, it goes all the way back to we're talking about the WHO coming up with another, you know, disease X yeah. to coerce us. This is what I'm afraid of government uh, government uh, overkill. So final words, government. final words from Carl Higby on today's podcast interview, which I think is really fabulous so far. It went in places I didn't think we'd go. I mean, we I talked about, we talked about hunting. We talked about building. We talked about your your upbringing. We got way into the weeds of Carl's life. And um, I'd like to leave the listeners for however many there may be or however few there may be. It's in the hundreds of thousands for sure. What would you leave the people with today after this discussion with the old buzzard, Michael Savage? I always tell people, um, you know, I get going around, I give speeches and things like that. And people always say, thank you for your service. And it's a very awkward thing for a veteran to hear that. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, we know it's coming from the heart. However, I always tell people, be someone worth dying for. Wow. That's something for me to think about. I'll have to think about that one. It's not something that, yep. you, that you ordinarily compute rapidly. Yeah. Is that a military thing? No, it just kind of came to me one day. I was uh, sitting there with my kids and thinking about it. And I was like, what is the one thing I could tell anybody? You know, what do I want to tell these kids every day when they wake up? And I was like, be someone worth dying for. I think you've just given us a title for today's podcast because I wrote it down. It's called be someone worth dying for with Carl Higby. I like it. That worked for you. That's your next book. Yes, sir. It's a good book, by the way. Copay. Carl, thank you for your time. And I won't say thank you for your service. I'll just say thank you for your time. My man, I appreciate you having me on. I really do appreciate it. Now, you got a show to do today, don't you? Yeah, a couple hours. (laughs) (laughs) You're not sweating it. How do you get into work every day? You don't run from Connecticut to Manhattan, do you? No, I usually, I mean, I'm I'm in the gym by, it opens at 5, so 5.01. And then where uh, here in Manhattan or in, in no, Connecticut? No, in, in Connecticut, yeah. I shower at the gym and I get the train and I'm in the city by eight o'clock. How train? Yeah, train. It's a 40 minute train ride. So it's not bad. New Haven Railroad. Uh, Metro North, even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the age of the madmen is over. Do you still see them on the train going in the madmen? I mean, they, the admin, the admin, the madmen. Uh, it's I will say it's much more tame these days. It's a lot of people buried in their their phones, not talking, not looking, just no social. You know, it's crazy. I offered a, a woman my seat. I I get on um, five minutes before the train leaves in the evening. I take a 619 train out of here and I, I I'm sitting seated down. There's men seated everywhere. And this woman walks in. She's got two bags with her, you know, 30s. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, do you want my seat? And she looked at me like I was like some horrible human, like like I had offended her. And so oh, you were talking down to her like she needs your seat. 
So I, I just stood up and I said, ma'am, would you like my seat? I know. So she thought you were talking down was, to her. It was a feminist thing, right? A hundred percent. And I was like, and then she literally just sneered at me and stormed off. I've never, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Unbelievable. That's how bad it's become. I mean, uh, I'm not, her, her attitude was, I'm not some weak lady that I need a man's seat. It, literally, that's exactly the vibe I got. Wow. What a world. What a world. It's certainly not a better world than it was that I grew up in. Be someone worth dying for. Carl, thank you for those inspiring words. They are really important words. I was saying the other day that I'm sick of the campaign because I want to hear one person give me one speech with one line that will put steel in my spine instead of talking about themselves and how bad the other guy is. And I was referring to what JFK's great line, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I was 22 years old. It made me stand up and look and say, wow. And to this day, I think of that. What can I do for yeah. my country? And you've done you've done the most, which is go in the military. But, you know, this statement you just gave is almost on that order. Be someone worth dying for. Is that original to you? It is. It's Carl. You could run to the presidency on that one. Of course, they'll take it the wrong way. I mean, when you, you, of course, I'm calling for violence at that point. <laughs> OK, how about be someone worth living for? There you go. Then your presidential campaign. Uh, I'll, I'll credit you, sir. <laughs> OK, Carl Higby, <laughs> thanks for being love your show. Thanks for being with us today on the podcast. Michael, thank you. Thank you, my friend. Good show today. Savage. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.